In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Derek Pryor about what it's like to build web applications in Elixir with Phoenix compared to building applications in Rails. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 45. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast, where I talk to people in the software industry with everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm your host, Adam Wadden, and today I'm here with Derek Pryor, developer at ThoughtBot and host of the uh, Bike Shed Podcast, which I'm a big fan of. How's it going, Derek? Uh, it's going great. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I listen to your podcast as well. Big fan. Awesome. Cool. So uh, I guess for anyone who's like not familiar with you or maybe hasn't checked out uh, the podcast you host, do you mind just giving a little bit of a uh, background about yourself and kind of what you do and kind of how you got into all this stuff? Oh, sure. Um, so I'm currently the development director at ThoughtBot in the Boston office. Um, I started out, you know, I loved programming from being a kid. So basically I came up and did computer science degree at college and then left college and was like, nobody taught me how to program. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I got my first job and ended up um, kind of going into the Microsoft world where I had kind of like a really broad focus. And Ruby was the first thing that I really kind of like sunk my teeth into when I escaped that Microsoft world. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. Look at this community. Look at, um, you know, all this open source stuff. This is great. I can build stuff without any, without a lot of ceremony. And so I went really deep on Ruby and I, I just really loved it. Ended up getting a job at ThoughtBot. And then, um, you know, from there, things have gone you know, in an interesting direction, I think. Uh, I was very protective of Ruby at first because it was like, you know, I went really deep on it. And uh, other people would be like, oh, I'm interested in Haskell. I'm interested. And I'd be like, no, Ruby, it's great. Um, but these days I've been playing mostly with uh, with Elixir and Phoenix and uh, really, really loving that to the point where I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I made the statement on Twitter not too long ago that I, I think it's basically my default for Greenfield web applications, you know, barring some sort of information that's going to change my mind. But that's my default position nowadays. Awesome. Yeah, that's kind of the whole reason I wanted to have you on here to chat because I've been uh, getting into Elixir a little bit lately, but haven't really gone much past just kind of messing around with some exorcism.io exercises and stuff, just kind of getting comfortable with the syntax and some functional programming ideas in general. So I'm really curious to kind of talk to you about what it's like to build an actual application in a functional programming language. Um, so when you were in like the Microsoft world, uh, what sort of stuff were you doing? Like C Sharp web stuff or... Yeah, C Sharp, ASP.NET, even before that, doing regular ASP with a VB script and things sure. like that. Okay, cool. Yep. So that's interesting to me because at least you have kind of like a, a good wide range of uh, experience there because I do a yeah. lot of PHP stuff and um, kind of the way things are in that ecosystem these days, everything is kind of very Java and C Sharp-ish in terms of uh, how people are building stuff, lots of dependency injection and type annotations and, and stuff like that. So uh, I think some of my questions are going to be touching on some of that stuff too. So uh, That's we'll, we'll see where yeah. where it goes. So, I mean, I like to I like to tell people that if if people have done it like to build websites in the last ten years, I've or fifteen years really, I've probably done that as well. Like I've done Perl, I've done all those things. So I've done PHP. I have that background as well. Right on. So was there anything that you were kind of um, I guess running into when building applications with Rails that had become a pain point that made you interested in building stuff with Elixir and Phoenix? performance. <laughs> um, it all came from performance concerns. I had several uh, consulting projects in a row that were all performance related projects. And I would get these projects kind of handed to me and they'd say like, um, 
you know, this site is seeing 15 second load times. Let's see what we can do to fix that. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would look into that and be like, oh, I'm sure it's just missing some indexes or whatever. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, like it's actually like active record query craziness where it's doing, you know, the worst case scenario that I was talking about was coworkers just yesterday. And the people who were on this project widely agreed that it's the worst code they've ever seen in their lives. But it was, <laughs> it was like doing thousands of queries on a single page and it was taking 30 seconds to load a website. And it was like, oh, it's just crushing. And it was like, I just kept running into those same problems. And like when you, like, it was easy to write off and be like, oh, those people didn't write their Rails app in the right way. Um, sure. They ran into these problems. They didn't have enough knowledge about the framework. Uh, which is partially true, but when you see that same problem over and over again and app after app, and granted, we're a consultancy, so we're not going to get called in when everything's going hunky-dory, but um, you know, you see the same problems again and again, N plus one, mainly just N plus one queries everywhere. Everybody has N yeah. plus one queries. Um, and just like even when you don't in the Ruby world, like rendering a view is actually, even when you do something totally, you, you know, at the controller level, you have your queries right, you have the right amount of data, you go to render a view and you're rendering a bunch of partials and that takes long because rendering ERB in Ruby is expensive. Um, so you end up starting to have to look into view caching and things like that. And I just kept having to do that on project after project and realizing like, this isn't fun. I don't want to be thinking about how I'm going to invalidate this cache. Yeah. Um, and just kept having to think about that. And so that's why I started looking at like, what, what else is out there that might help? And like, Elixir had a lot of the buzz for performance-related reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of my coworkers were into functional programming. Um, there's a big contingent here in our Boston office that is into Haskell. So there was a bunch of people who were like really looking into that. And that just didn't, I looked at that for a little bit and it didn't, just didn't like sing to me. Sure. You know, like it just wasn't something that I had fun writing. Um, Whereas uh, when I found myself on Elixir projects, I was like, this, this makes sense to me. As somebody who likes Ruby, this is Ruby-ish in syntax. Like it looks, it's a joy, it's still joyful for me to write. Sure. Um, and then it solves some of my other problems. Um, like the performance, the performance things, I'm sure there can be performance problems in Elixir as well, but it's just built on Erlang. It's super fast. Um, the design of the ORM that's mostly used, which is Ecto, um, makes N plus one queries not impossible, but really, really difficult. Yeah, so um, that's what I was going to ask. Like, do you think it sounds like a lot of these performance problems are not necessarily so much to do with like Ruby versus Elixir as it is so much to do with how a Rails app ends up versus how a Phoenix app ends up because of the way the tooling encourages you to write your code? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a conscious decision. If you talk to, uh, to Jose, I think he would say the design in Ecto so for people who aren't familiar, Ecto um, will make you, let's step back for a second. In Rails, if you have um, a post that has many authors, right? You have a blog post that can have many authors. If you say, if you have that in memory as the post variable and you say post.authors and you start iterating over yeah. post.authors, if that's not already loaded, Rails is just going to go out and find you those authors. Yeah. Um, and that's like, an basically, if it hasn't already been loaded, it's an N plus one query because it's going to go get the first author, get the second author, get the third author. Um, and iterate over those. Uh, in Ecto, they don't. If you if you say if you have that same situation where you say post.authors and you start trying to do something with it and you didn't load that up front, Ecto is going to give you an error that says association not loaded error or something like that, very similar. Um, and so it forces you at the controller level or wherever else you're doing the loading to know what data you're going to use when you're rendering this view. Um, so you have to think ahead a little bit or you have to ultimately what you end up doing is responding to that error you get while you're doing sure. your TDD or doing browser test driven, uh, browser driven development or however you want to do it. Um, 
you end up responding to that error by saying, oh, okay, I need to preload here. Yeah. Um, so you end up, so, so it's, it just cuts that entire avenue off. Um, whereas in the Ruby world, now that things have gone uh, the direction of like aggressive caching in the Ruby world, there are people who build Rails sites. And this isn't, if you're going to take that direction, this isn't a bad idea, but like DHH will advocate that in their, in their applications, they don't, they will often not do all of the preloads required just for, to get the for, Russian doll caching benefits. Yes, because there's no reason to if you've if if ultimately that's going to hit a cache anyway. You're doing a bunch of database queries that aren't going to be needed. Yeah, you actually end um, up saving yourself a couple database right. queries. Yeah, right. So, which to me is just like, uh, ooh, I don't know. It's just relying <laughs> on so many different levels to get everything right, and ultimately, you know, your cold cache hits are going to be a lot sure. slower. So, um, you know, it's it's things like that where in both. Ecto and Phoenix and the language, you know, I'm, I'm not as like, I'm, I'm not really a language nut, so I'm not the right one to speak to like why the design of Erlang, why the design of Elixir on top of Erlang results in a faster language than Ruby. Yeah. It just is. Yeah, for um, sure. And for, and like the libraries we use typically with those Phoenix and, and Ecto are both kind of designed to head off some of the complexities that you'll find in, uh, in Active Record and, and Rails. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess uh, another question I have for you is coming into Phoenix and Elixir, you know, a, a functional programming language that's missing all sorts of things that people kind of expect to have and rely on in a different programming paradigm. What are some of the things that you think people are going to like notice right away when they're switching from a Rails to a Phoenix or the stuff that you think people are going to get hung up on or the stuff that maybe you got hung up on? Um, I would say for me, um, it was maybe less of a jump from a, for a typical Rails developer because I had been trending in a direction of writing what I would call like functional style Ruby. Not really functional, but like in that, like inspired by functional programming yeah. where I'd have a lot of objects that like, you know, quote unquote objects that were just placeholders for functions, mm -hmm. which are what modules are in Elixir. Basically, you put a function under a module and then you call it that way. Um, so I would have these things that did one job and they had one public method called process, sure. <laughs> you know, and they would do whatever. And I had a lot of that. And those were mostly immutable like they are in Elixir. Um, like I wouldn't have adder accessors on them that allow you to like poke into their innards and change the values, things like that. So that wasn't too much of a change for me. Um, but I think if you're not familiar with that style of programming, it's going to be different. One of the things that I really got hung up on is like through the years of doing Ruby, the idea of like object oriented programming, single responsibility principle was like drilled into my head where like, okay, I have a need for this functionality. I have these objects in my system. Where does this functionality belong? And like when I first started, when I first started doing Ruby and like when I was kind of green with object-oriented programming, I would just be like, all right, well, I already have these objects in my system. It's going to belong on one of these two. And then I feel like the next step to that is like, oh, I can create a whole new object between these things, right? Sure. That's responsible for this. So that's cool. All right. And that's where I'm going to put this functionality. And then moving over to Elixir, I was paralyzed a little bit by like, well, where, where should this go? Like what, what, uh, module should own yeah, this Yeah, you behavior? have like no starting point, right? Like it's just Right. It can be, it can go anywhere. And the, the the reason is like it doesn't really matter like mo <laughs> modules are just bags of functions and they don't have state so like that so so like the object oriented part is the single responsibility is necessary because they like you're managing state and here with the functional part you're not managing state you're just having a convenient place to group like functions yeah um so i found you know 
ultimately I'm just kind of like, I'll look at a file and be like, does this, do these functions hang together or should I break something else out? Or is it more convenient just to have like 25 functions in this file? Um, or like I find myself writing longer functions than I might write in Ruby where I was like very much like I was so happy when I had a one line method in Ruby. Sure. Um, whereas in Elixir, and I was very upset when I got to like five, six, seven lines. I'd be like, oh goodness, I got to break something out here. Whereas in Elixir, for whatever reason, I feel a little more comfortable writing like longer functions. Um, and that might be just because of the, the functional aspects of it, like data in, data out and no, no, no immutability. No side effects. I mean, sorry, not no immutability. Yeah. No side effects. Cool. Yeah. One of the things that I I kind of found interesting um, playing with Elixir is, I'm the, let me think of the best way to describe this. I always felt like when I was writing code in an object-oriented programming language, where I needed to do something, and I didn't want to like muddy up the user class or something with this responsibility, even though it was like really relevant to the user and really depended on the user and was doing stuff with the user. I felt kind of gross to make stuff where I'd be passing everything in as parameters and acting on it when it, you feel like, you know, in an object oriented way, like shouldn't this verb like exist on one of these nouns or whatever. Right. In Mm -hmm. Elixir, because of like the pipe operator and the way you can write code to make it kind of, kind of look like you're calling a method on an object it feels like really natural to break up related functions into different modules and still treat them as like, well, this is designed to operate on this data structure, but it doesn't have to live with other functions that are completely unrelated to, to what it's doing. Is that right. something that like um, stood out to you at all or have thought about much? Yeah. Yeah. Like on the project I was just on, um, you know, we had a user module and it had, it, it had grown pretty large and to your point, like the same type of thing, I would look at these and I'd be like, well, they all have to do with the user. So like, mm. this is kind of a reasonable place to put it. I could break it out, but, and then it was like, well, actually, it doesn't matter that they all have to do with the user. If I look at this closer, four of these functions have to do with registering a user. Yeah. So I can have uh, a user registration module that has all the registration type functionality in it. Um, it doesn't have anything to, it's completely divorced from the struct that is my user. Yeah. Um, or even the, you know, ecto, even like the, the database table that represents my user. It's just functions that I use for account registration. Um, and once we started doing that on that project, it became like, oh, well, we can move this out. We can move this out. We can have these small modules. And you want to avoid having like a module for every single little thing because that's just a lot of files and a lot of things to keep in your yeah. head. But like where there are groups of functionality like inside that user class, that <laughs> see, I did it, inside that user module, um, <laughs> uh, where there are groups of functionality, pulling out modules dedicated to that was like a real help in um, clarifying the role of all these different functions really. Yeah, when I think about that, it kind of reminds me of when people take, you know, code in some big class and try and break it out by extracting like modules that you're going to mix in. Do you see that similarity or what do you think makes it, you know, completely different than that? Um, I think it's different in the way that it's accessed. So if you were to do that in a Ruby, uh, so let's say you have a Ruby object called user and you extract it out in, in active record, you would probably extract out like a concern mm-hmm. for registration. They would have all the, all the methods that you use during registration. And ultimately you would include that in your user class. So when you have a user instance, you can just call user.register or you know, I don't know, whatever the, whatever the function might've been. So at the call site, it's no different than having that function, having that method defined directly on the user class. Whereas breaking it out into a module is completely different, right? So when you want to access that function, you say, 
you know, user registration dot register or whatever, whatever the function name is. Um, it's, uh, it's completely divorced from the thing that it's operating on the, the bag of data, mm-hmm. which is a, which is the struct that it's operating on, um, is not important so much as the, the, the module that's filed under, like, where does this function live? How do I call this function? That's all it is. It's just, you know, I keep saying it's a bag of functions and that's all it is. Cool. Um, so yeah, so I think the difference is just in the call, the way you call it. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank our first sponsor of the episode, and that is Laracasts. So Laracasts is a de facto community and educational resource for PHP developers of all skill levels, covering all sorts of topics in the web application development space, from uh, getting started with frameworks like Laravel to building complex user interfaces with JavaScript frameworks like Vue.js and React. I think there's over 700 videos on there right now, which is over 120 hours of content. And Laracast actually has a special offer for Full Stack Radio listeners, where if you sign up with the coupon code FULLSTACK2016, all one word, all caps, you actually get 50% off of your first month. So you can get access to 120 hours of content for under five bucks, which is pretty awesome. And I think uh, once you check it out, you'll be hooked. It's probably the best $9 a month that I spend. I always find new stuff there to learn, and it's kind of my go-to resource for any new topic that I'm trying to learn. I'm always hoping that Jeffrey has done a video on something because he does such a great job teaching this material. So if you haven't checked it out, definitely check out Laracast.com and use the special full stack 2016 coupon code to give it a try and get your first month for 50% off. Thanks Laracast for sponsoring the show. Some things that I've been kind of wondering about functional programming when it comes to building like web applications like Rails apps in general is like People will talk about like functional programming languages like being pure and not having side effects and and stuff like that. How does that kind of how do you reconcile that with things like needing to write to the database and stuff like that? Like I that's one of those things that I have a hard time kind of like picturing in my head how it's meant to work. Um right. I'd be interested to hear kind of like your uh take <laughs> on explaining how that works in a functional programming language. Um I'm probably not very good at it because I have the same concerns, right? When people would tell me, <laughs> when people at ThoughtBot really started getting into Haskell, they would tell me about like, oh, there's no side effects. I'd be like, oh, really? Then how do you do anything ever, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. like, like at some point there needs to be something, some visible change somewhere yeah. or nothing has ever happened, right? Um, you need to write to a database. You need to display something on the screen. You need to like something, something happens, something changes. Um, and it's all in how, like in the Haskell land, at least it's all in how you, um, box those changes like you have you do it inside of io operations which are special there's like an io monad for it uh i'm the wrong person to talk about haskell sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um in elixir land like a lot of those same things are true like there's immutability and things like that but it just doesn't it doesn't get in my way so i guess i don't like uh, whatever it's doing makes sense in my brain that I don't have to think about it very often. Sure. Um, so I, I just don't. Um, and it works out okay. So, so if you're trying to like save something with like the ORM though, mm-hmm. the syntax for it and the way it works, is it like similar to what it would be like in a non-functional language like you would expect? Like I think in Ecto you have like repositories, right? And you pass like change sets into a repository. It works something like that. So if you yep. pass in a change set and say like save this set of changes, when then you get a return value back from that, like the database has been updated and you didn't, you know, like there right. was a side effect and it happened. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yes. Yes. There's definitely still side effects. It definitely does use the repository pattern, which I don't think is necessarily functional. 
Sure. Um, it's just their implementation of it is. So it's a little different. Like that was one of the actually, you know, earlier you had asked about what the biggest stumbling block is. And, and it's still like the, for me, the repository pattern, like getting used to that. Like when I'm, I load up an IEX console, just like I did in Rails, when I open up a Rails console to like poke around with some data. And I keep wanting to be like user.find1 and find username, user ID1, right? It just doesn't work that way. You have to be like repo.get user1. Um, so it's like a little bit different, but um, but I keep getting tripped up on that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the the I guess you could say in Ecto, you know, those side effects are boxed in by the operations that you can do with the change set. I mean, that's not entirely true either because you can do operations that don't involve a change set, but that, you know, you get that similar boxing effect. Um, and the change sets themselves are another, like just to take a step <laughs> forward with those for a second, like the change sets themselves are another really, th- really, really big area where I prefer the design of Ecto to the design of Active Record and Rails. The change set is a kind of minimal implementation of what Active Model kind of is in the Rails world, which if you act, if you ask Rails developers what the API for Active Model is, like Rails developers just shrug and go, I, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't know how to how to build some, I, I cannot do it out of the box. Like I know I, at, at some point in Rails 4-ish, they implemented something that you could just say like, include Active Model model and it would include a bunch of stuff. But you'd a- if you ask a Rails developer, like what does that include? They're like, I, I don't know. Whereas a change set is a much m- more easy to understand object that stands in for like, this is the thing that gets in, like th- this is where your form input goes and you pass it off to the database and it has de- details on like what the errors are, stuff like that. And it all kind of lives in this cohesive thing. Um, so I really enjoyed those. But as far as the side effects go, like your, your confusion, I think is kind of in line with mine, except that I've just kind of not, not had any problems with it. So I don't, I don't, you know, I don't ask questions. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. I mean, like those are the sorts of things that I think people find intimidating. So to hear that, like a lot of things are more similar than like you might have been led to believe or are not going to feel as, as foreign, I think right. is uh, helpful for people who might want to be trying out some of this stuff. Yeah, certainly. And I think, I think, um, you know, there's been some blog posts. There's a blog post by Chris McCord, who uh, is the primary author of Phoenix, um, where he talks about how, Phoenix isn't just rails for Elixir and all of the points he makes in that article are fantastic. But I think it's important to note that if you are a rails developer, (laughs) Phoenix is going to feel really familiar to you in a good way, like in a really good way. Um, And it's, I don't think there's any denying that it's inspired by rails. I don't know if Chris would say that himself, but it it certainly looks like it. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know, I don't think it's such a bad thing that as a, as a Rails developer, you'll be pretty comfortable pretty quickly. It's Ecto that I think you'll, the, the repository pattern specifically that I think it'll be a little bit, um, probably the, you know, that's that's the documentation I'm still referring to the most as I'm writing what I would consider basic functionalities. I almost always have the Ecto docs up. Cool. Aside from like missing libraries and stuff that maybe like the Elixir and Phoenix kind of ecosystem doesn't have yet, is there anything that you miss about Rails or that you think, is done better in like an object oriented sort of way that is awkward or harder to do in a kind of a functional paradigm when it comes to building web applications? Um, I don't know what I would say. I would blame it on the paradigm. I think both of them have ways to do things that make sense when you're in those paradigms. Um, but I would say that maybe the maturity of Elixir and Phoenix leave some things that are not yet tackled yeah. that are already tackled in the, in rails land. Um, you know, one of my chief complaint was actually like, um, calendar stuff, like doing date times, yeah. um, in Elixir, 
up until last week <laughs> required basically dropping down into some into an Erlang tuple where you specify year, month, day, hour, minute, second, and you pass that around. But the problem is, the problem with that was that um, the different libraries that deal with time, like Ecto, you know, clearly takes the time that is expressed in an Erlang format and persists that to a database. Um, and other libraries, there's this library called Good Times that allows you to say things like very, very active supporty, where you can say like uh, five minutes from now using the pipe operator, things like that. Um, that would expect that would that would return one format that then you couldn't pass off to this other library that dealt with times. Uh, and it was a really frustrating experience. And I like on an episode of the Bike Shed where I was talking about my early experiences with Elixir. I said, like, this date time thing is crazy. Like, I don't understand <laughs> how anybody figures out, like, what format does this thing return me data in and what format does the next thing need data in? And I had all these crazy pipelines in my database to transform these things. And um, it turns out that uh, uh, Jose listened to the episode <laughs> and was like, and it wasn't like, it wasn't the first time he'd ever heard this feedback, clearly. It was something they had been considering, but kind of just like backburnered because they didn't have a great answer for sure. it yet. And then he was like, yeah, that's right. We're going to fix that. And like it's they shipped calendar date times in Elixir 1.3 and like now the you know the libraries need to catch up to supporting the calendar date times that are native to Elixir 1.3. Um so like that was an example of just an area that they had like every like people knew was kind of uh, a sharp edge but hadn't gotten around, nobody had gotten around to fixing it just yet. Um so there's different things like that I think that are still hanging around in Elixir. Um some of the tooling I think also not as mature um, and it'll get there. It, it improves with every release. Like um, there were some new, like in the Elixir land you have mix, which is basically a blend of rake and bundler um, and a little bit of Ruby gems. Hex is actually what is like the Ruby gems thing, but kind of gets papered over by mix in your project. Um, and it has like, Again, up until Elixir one three, it didn't have a way to say like, show me all of the de- all of the programming dependencies in my project in a tree format, so I can see like uh, when I'm having trouble updating this library, it's telling me there's an incompatible version of some like dependency of my dependency, but I don't know which dependency that belongs to, right? <laughs> like, um, so they added some stuff to do that, and like um, some of the stuff like th- there's still some stuff like um, the Rails CLI takes a very like application developer perspective to things like um if you want to write a migration you just say rails generate migration if you want to migrate the database you say rails migrate rails db migrate or whatever now in as of rails 5 you do anyway it used to be rake db migrate but um whereas the whereas mixed tasks uh force you to know the tool that you're using so it's not like it's not mix uh, generate migration. It's mix ecto gen migration. So that kind of thing. Um, and that takes a little getting a little getting used to. It's easy once you know it, but when you don't know it, you don't know, you don't necessarily know what tool is responsible for doing migrations sure. or what tool is responsible for doing this other stuff. So I think Rails has put a little more work, especially recently, into the out-of-the-box experience for people who don't know what's going on. Yeah. Um, so there's a little bit more work there, but I think it is all just a matter of maturity, not necessarily like, oh, you can't do this in the functional world very well. Got it. Um, I think it's just maturity and, and Elixir is rapidly getting more and more mature as, as is Phoenix. So awesome. Uh, one thing that, um, some of the kind of more well-known like Elixir programmers and stuff, uh, talk about as one of the big benefits of 
working with Elixir and like some of the features and stuff that people seem to be excited about are stuff related to like WebSocket stuff and concurrency and, um, you know, like the Phoenix presence stuff. Uh, but personally, I haven't really worked on a lot of applications where those sorts of things have been important features. Um, I'd be curious to know like how your experience kind of fits in there and uh, whether or not like you think I guess like is Elixir still like better than Rails for you throwing out all those features when it just comes to things like I just need to build a blog or something you know what I mean Mm -hmm. I mean if I just needed to build a blog I would probably use WordPress Uh, (laughs) sure sure (laughs) I mean begrudgingly but no but (laughs) I I get your point and I, I agree with it completely like there's a lot of um, like last, I think it was last summer, there were a, a series of tweets where they were, um, where Chris and some other, and Jose and some other people were basically trying to bleed, um, the most number of active connections across channels that they could get for WebSockets. And they got to some absurd number, which is really impressive. Um, it's, uh, from the framework perspective and from the libraries involved that it could, and from Erlang and Elixir, right. That it can support all of this. Um, but ultimately in my work, m- personally not terribly important yeah um like the WebSocket stuff not terribly important scale is important and speed is important but the scale they were talking about was way past what most of what most of our clients are using um there we certainly do have some that have huge scale um issues so but yeah so i think i still do think throwing out the WebSocket stuff and ignoring it completely which is mostly what i've done i've played with it on the side but i haven't used it in any projects Throwing that out, it's still for me better. Um, and a lot of the experience I see in other projects is like people building APIs with Elixir, which is great. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's very fast. It gives you good response times. But uh, you know what else is very fast? Doing server rendered HTML yeah. with Elixir. It's cool. still really fast and it's still fun to do. Um, and it's still, and the, it has the advantage of being really simple to debug. Whereas when you start getting into you know um, single page web apps or um, you know, mobile apps, things like that. Um, there's some complexity there. So I've been advocating for a long time now and even still working with Elixir and Phoenix that, um, you know, we should never forget about, <laughs> never forget server rendered HTML. Sure. Please. Um, so yeah, I still really do. My my happy project would be somebody who comes to us uh, with a really good idea, a Greenfield project, and uh, it's perfectly happy with server rendered HTML and I would write that in Elixir and Phoenix. Just wanted to take another quick break to thank our second sponsor of the show, Rollbar. So one of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors, of course, right? You know, either you rely on your users to report errors or you're digging through log files trying to figure out what went wrong or... Maybe you're hooked up to an existing tool and you got millions of alerts flooding your inbox all day long. Uh, Rollbar is like a full stack error monitoring solution. And with Rollbar, you get the context, insights, and control that you need to find and fix bugs faster with a lot less noise. So Rollbar is really easy to install. You can start tracking production errors and deployments in eight minutes or less. It works with all major languages and frameworks, including Ruby, Python, JavaScript, PHP, Node, iOS. You know, you get the picture. If you're a Laravel developer, like myself, there's actually a package that you can use that integrates with Rollbar really quickly. So Rollbar also integrates with a lot of different other tools, like it can send your errors to Slack or HipChat or create new issues in GitHub, Jira, and stuff like that. And uh, for full stack radio listeners, Rollbar actually has a special offer where if you sign up at rollbar.com slash full stack radio, you get access to their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So you get like 300,000 errors tracked for free. 
So give Rollbar a try. Head over to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio to try out the bootstrap plan. And thanks to Rollbar for sponsoring the show. Another thing I guess that comes up a lot with the uh, Elixir is like all the OTP stuff and the idea of like all these multi processes and stuff that honestly, like I, I don't barely even know what it means in, in the context of like building a web application similar to like what a rails app would be. How is that stuff kind of fit into the stuff you've been working on? And is it, is it stuff that gets used automatically stuff that you don't even notice or, you know what I mean? I'd just be curious to understand like what that even is and where does it play into like building a web application? Yeah. Again, it's, it's kind of magical to me as well. I haven't looked into OTP and supervisors and umbrella apps is another thing you can do. Got it. I haven't, I have not looked much into that because just gen, just working on a Phoenix app on a single like web server rendered HTML app, it's not super important. Like I know it's happening for me. I know there's some supervision happening for me. I know there's a lot of processes involved. Um, Erlang actually ships with something where you can, there's a UI to like see all of the pro like the process tree for what's going on in Erlang. And if you load that up during a Phoenix app, it's actually really interesting to see, but it doesn't quite make a lot of sense to me just yet. Um, it's something like actually just this at, at lunch, as I was thinking about this call, I was like, he's going to ask me about OTP and I don't know. I think about OTP. Well, honestly, that's, that's <laughs> reassuring to me because like you hear people like talk about some of these stuff as like major benefits of using this stuff. And if that's stuff that you don't understand, it kind of is, makes it you kind of a little bit more intimidated to like get into it. Like all the stuff that I'm going to have to learn, like, rethinking how I'm going to build stuff completely. But if you can just go in and build something with the same sort of general approach, general same feature set of like a web application that you'd build with rails and still feel a lot of benefits from, from working with Elixir and Phoenix and like ignoring all this stuff that you've never heard of before, or it doesn't seem like it has like um, a similar uh, a corollary yeah, right? in, in the opposite language, then uh, you know, it's good to know that like, that's stuff that I guess you can grow into. And is there like when you decide that you want to start doing stuff that would be able to take advantage of that, but like mm. you can still do lots of cool stuff and build cool things without really having to think about it too much. Right. And I think, you know, I, I do know it's you, I am aware it's happening for me. Like I will use certain libraries, like come on in as a uh, bcrypt like encryption library. Mm -hmm. And it will say something like add, add this to, um, the applications array in your mix.exx file. So I know that it's doing something there. I know it's like some sort of process that's getting started up and it's being supervised. And I just don't worry. And like as long as it explains what I have to do in the readme, I get that started. And I, I consciously know that like that's related to these applications things that I really need to look into someday. But for the most part, haven't had to just yet. Um, so you know, if you're writing those libraries, I, I imagine it matters a lot more. Or if you want to do something in your application that takes advantage of something like that, it's going to matter to you a lot more. But I think that's a bridge that you can easily cross when it when you come to it. It's not it's not a prerequisite to understanding how how to write a Phoenix app. If you want to understand how it operates, then yeah, you're going to need to understand that. But um, you know, I'm getting there, but haven't had the need to dive into it just yet. Right on. Uh, getting back to, I guess, like. Um kind of more of a, a functional programming, uh, how do you build web apps in a functional language sort of question. Uh, something that um, probably like you'll be familiar with from like the C sharp world and stuff is this idea that like you should never have global references to things and that's bad and all this stuff. And I have a hard time figuring out like how that works in a functional language where like you just reference a module, like whenever you need to use it, like how do you polymorphically swap out one module with a different one? If you want to use like a, a fake mailer instead of like a real mailer or something, you know what I mean? Is that, 
does that even make sense in a functional programming language or I don't know? Yeah, I mean, I think it does. Um, you could do it. And I think it all comes down to what a community embraces. Um, like Java embraces dependency injection, like almost to a fault. Like everything is dependency injected everywhere. Um, and it can be hard to figure out what's actually happening when an application gets run. That's my opinion. Sure. Um, whereas Ruby, you could do dependency injection in Ruby too, but people generally don't. Or if they do, they do very lightweight dependency injection where you um, you pass the dependency in the in the constructor, right? But it's still done in a code. There's no external container for the dependency injection. Um, but you could do something. You there's nothing stopping you in a functional perspective from um, having a module that's responsible for looking up, you know, what module gets used at runtime, mm-hmm. right? Um, or or um, you know, the example you gave of like using a fake mailer in this instance, um, for that, we've tended to use configuration and just say uh, to configure that, you know, te- in test, we use this fake mailer in production, we use actual mailer. So how, do, how use, does it choose like which one to use though? Like, aren't you just like referencing the name of the module that you want to use directly? Like, how do you isolate things? Um, I, like again, kind of like from a configuration perspective. So you would say like app.config and you would say mailer, right? And then your configuration for test, mailer is set to be and you reference it by the constant name, by the module name or whatever. Um, and then you would use, and then, you know, one of the nice things about um, Elixir is the ability to use something like type specs or behaviors to say like, and I expect my mailers to look like this and implement this behavior um, so that you know that the fake one has the same functions as the function specifications as the real one. But, you know, at some point you are still writing a module name somewhere, um, which is kind of true of a container as well. Like in something like Java, at some point you just write it in the container. Um, and if you look at config as a container, you know, you could, you could squint and see that as well. Um, one of my coworkers, Blake Williams has a library called Pact, P-A-C-T, which is uh, its dependency injection for Elixir. And I've been meaning to take a look at that, but I have not quite quite done that yet. But like the way it, it works similarly in that you say like pact.get.http and that would get you whatever your HTTP library is. And then you can operate on that. Um, it's just a way to look up your dependency basically. Cool. And those sorts um, of things are returning like modules, not like functions. Possibly. Both, I mean, or... I don't see a reason you couldn't provide it you couldn't return a function right um so yeah that would it it would work it's again i think it's more of a what's the community going to embrace that ends up like i said you can do dependency injection in ruby and um it's just not often done i don't know what's the php land everything is dependency injected like you are you're a bad developer if you use the new keyword you know what i mean (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so Okay. Which, yeah, uh, which just comes- is not what I believe, but that's why it's interesting to me to find <laughs> out like, you know, if that's what's kind of preached as the right way to do things in the community that I'm in, but people don't do that in other communities and they're still good programmers writing good code. What are they doing? You know what I mean? Um, right. So. Yep. And I think it, like I said, like, you, like we were just saying, it com- comes down to community by community and what's the, what's the like standard practice there. And sometimes fighting that is just not, it's not worth it right (laughs) so like in php fighting doing dependency injection at this point might be a a losing battle whereas um, doing dependency injection in ruby is going to be a losing battle when you have to bring on another developer who's like what's going on here (laughs) 
Yeah. Like this, why are you doing this? And you have to explain it every time. Um, and it's fine if you have, if everybody on your team is bought into it, um, it'll work just fine. But you know, I mean, apps are built, apps have been built without dependency injection that have been fine. Apps have been built with dependency injection that have been awful. Um, I think it's a, I think it's something good to strive for, particularly in area like, you know, maybe like I said, in Java, I feel like it's pursued to like ad nauseum to like maybe a, the negative, at least in the Java code that I've worked with, um, maybe to a negative sense, but, um, you know, for the most part, I just go along with whatever the community is doing in that particular language. Cool. Uh, what's it like to deploy an Elixir application for you guys? Um, the Elixir applications we have internally are mostly deployed to Heroku. There's a build pack for that. works out really well. Um, and for some of our clients, they're doing AWS deployments. I haven't had to work, worry about that too much, but the Heroku stuff seems like mostly a solved problem. Um, the AWS stuff, you know, our client doesn't have too much. They have more, they have more of a problem setting up servers than they do like actually deploying the Elixir code onto it and getting Elixir code run. Um, it's the other stuff that, you know, dealing with AWS can be hard sometimes. For sure. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I think it's been, it's been pretty solid. Um, and a lot of like the dependency stuff, uh, ends up being inspired from things that are in Ruby because of Jose's background with Ruby. So it's familiar for me from that perspective. And I think it just, it just works. Cool, man. So I guess if someone was looking to get started with Elixir and Phoenix, uh, coming from like a web development background and wanted to build like the first application, do you have any particular advice for them or, or where would you point them as far as like resources and stuff to learn more about it? I can tell you what I did, which is somebody who was, somebody who was very familiar with Ruby I bought the Pragmatic Programmer's Elixir book by David Thomas, and I read three, four chapters, maybe. And then I switched over to Programming Phoenix, and I read maybe the first half of that book. And I have not picked up either since. <laughs> like, it was, a, it was enough to get me to the point where I was like, okay, that's cool. I get it. And, like, some of the trickier Phoenix stuff, especially when I was first getting started, I was very lucky to have somebody like Paul Smith, who's a coworker of mine who does a lot of Elixir open source work and was one of the early adopters of Elixir, definitely at ThoughtBot and perhaps even like <laughs> one of the earlier adopters of Elixir and Phoenix, like just period. Um, and certainly one of the earlier evangelists of it. Um, he was there on that project with me where I was my first Elixir project where I was able to be like, can you just explain this to me yeah. really quick? And that really helps. So having somebody that can help, obviously, uh, that's a that's a big thing. If you don't have that, I think those two books um, are the ones that are most often referenced: Programming Elixir and um, you know Phoenix Phoenix Web. App. I don't remember the exact title. I think it's called sure we can put Programming Phoenix. Okay, so Programming Elixir, Programming Phoenix. Um, pick up both of those. The Elixir book is by David Thomas. The Phoenix book is by Chris and Jose. I would also say, like, as somebody. You know, just saying those names as somebody who came from the Ruby community and really liked the vibe of the Ruby community, the Elixir community has a similar vibe to like early days Ruby community at this point. Um, Jose is one of the nicest people you'll probably ever come across in, uh, you know, open source programming communities. And it shows it's kind of like kind of the, the Ruby community has the Matt's is nice and so we are nice slogan. Um, I think Elixir could have the same slogan <laughs> if they wanted to steal it. Jose is nice. And so we are nice. Um, and mostly it, everybody is nice. And, you know, I was so pleasantly surprised to hear Jose's feedback on that podcast where I complained about a few things and he was like, Oh, it was great to hear. 
I was like, oh, cool. That's great. That's, I'm glad you took it well and not like, oh, this guy's complaining about the programming language I wrote that he loves. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. It's just a really welcoming community. Um, beyond those books, there's an Elixir Slack channel. There's Elixir uh, that, that's pretty active. Um, there's Elixir Sips, which are videos kind of like in the theme of Railscast that kind of are, are great for getting a wide exposure to a lot of different libraries and patterns and things like that in the Elixir language. So I think that both, all of those things would be good places to start. Awesome, man. Is uh, there anything else that you wanted to uh, talk about uh, before we uh, start wrapping up or anything else that you wanted to share when it comes to your Elixir and Phoenix experiences? Um, no, not really. I think uh, everybody should just try it. <laughs> Um, and uh, more server gen- more server rendered HTML please <laughs> <laughs> awesome well uh, Derek thank you uh, so much for coming on and giving me your time it's been uh, a pleasure to chat with you about some of this stuff and it's getting me uh, really excited about digging into Phoenix great thank you very much for having me what's the best way for people to kind of keep up with uh, what you're doing and uh, kind of follow what's going on with you and your Phoenix adventures sure you can follow me on Twitter it's at Derek Pryor D-E-R-E-K-P-R-I-O-R um, if you want to follow what ThoughtBot's doing in the Elixir land, you can go, we'll put a link in the show notes, but you can go to thoughtbot.com slash services slash Elixir dash Phoenix. And you can, uh, that's where we link our like most recent blog posts, uh, open source projects that we have, and we'll have more of those coming. We have a lot of people internally here that are really excited about it. It's not just, not just a few of us. It's actually growing here. So it's really interesting. So keep an eye on there to see, uh, see what kind of impact we have there. Perfect. Uh, if anyone's interested in show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 45 if i'm remembering correctly maybe 46 <laughs> 45 and uh if you can rate and review the show on itunes that's uh, always useful to get us in front of more people and have more people hear about uh what we're chatting about here and uh thanks to Rollbar and laracasts for sponsoring full stack radio as always thanks everyone see you next time see ya <laughs>